everyone and welcome back to Motherkind, the podcast that's going to help you navigate the massive challenges of motherhood and life with more acceptance, ease, joy and clarity. Thanks to each and every one of you that come back every week to listen, learn and feel inspired. If you love the podcast, do me a favour and hit subscribe. It really does help us reach more mothers with these incredible guests that we have on the show. So through August, I take a break from recording new episodes to reset, take a bit of a breather and reconnect with the family. But we re-released the most downloaded episodes from the past six months. And this week it is with Dr. Anne Lane. This episode came out in February this year. It is an incredible episode. I can see why it is one of our top three most downloaded. And this is really one of those episodes that I wish every single parent could listen to. I really, really believe if every parent could listen to this, we would make things radically different for ourselves and our children. Before we get into the episode, I just quickly want to tell you that my next round of group coaching starts on the 14th of September. So if you love the podcast and you've ever thought, oh, I would love to work with Zoe, this is your chance. If you're feeling like you need some clarity, maybe you just need a reset, maybe you're feeling disconnected from yourself and stuck in any area of your life, then I want to support you. It's an eight week coaching program with me and 10 amazing other mothers from the Motherkind community. I bring my coaching skills and incredible toolkit to help move you from wherever you are to wherever you want to get to in those eight weeks. And we cover so much, including boundaries, values, clarity, beliefs, and so, so, so much more that I could not possibly list because this ad would be the whole episode. But anyway, if you are interested in finding out more, head to my website, motherkind.co, for more info. And here is the episode. Welcome, and to the podcast. I'm so excited to be chatting. It always just fills me with so much excitement when I get to speak to people who, you know, you're a mother of three and you bring all of this professional experience as an author now. You've got a book coming out and as a psychologist. So I think the intersection of those it just never fails to fascinate and excite me. So I'm really excited to what we're going to talk about. Well, thank you, Zoe. I'm very excited to be here. It's great to have a career that I also get to practice and experience every day. So I find that connection really great myself. So I'm glad to talk to you. What's been parenting three children? Maybe share their ages for context, but what's been the biggest surprises and challenges for you, both in context of your professional experience and your personal one? Oh, what a nice question, Zoe. That's a lovely question. Okay, so they're six, eight and ten at the moment. And I suppose, I don't want this to sound cheesy, but the biggest surprise for me is how fun and resilient and involved in the process of making a relationship with me they are. So they are little people, getting bigger people, who really want the relationship with me to work, who put a lot of energy, a lot of time, and spend a lot of time repairing things or trying to work things through. And I suppose before I had children, I tended to think of parenting as something that was done to children. Now I have three complete individuals who can drive me up the wall (laughs) but who are lively dynamic and respond back to me and have their own ideas and their own ways of making the relationship work so it's that it's having three whole people in my life where I thought I might have children (laughs) people to manage 
tend to look after, inform. It's a whole different pot of stuff, isn't it? Sorry. They are there. They are big personalities. They are shaping the way our parent and they, they are challenging me daily. What are some of the big challenges? The big challenges for me is trying to balance my needs and their needs. That's a big challenge. Trying to do the things that make my life meaningful, that keep me feeling sane while also giving them a bit of space. So time is an enormous challenge. Having three, it's juggling the sort of chaos of having three. So whereas sometimes when I was working with parents and families before, you would be able to concentrate on just one thing. In my family life, we don't get to concentrate on just one thing. It all hits me in the face, trips me up. (laughs) I'm trying to find a way of shifting and changing things. And other times trying to sort of ease up when it is just a bit of chaos, when it's a bit of a calamity, let the day ease past and start afresh again without feeling demoralised or fed up or without just losing, losing that sense of what we're all about. So it's the chaos Zoe, it's the emotions. The emotions are just endless. I say it's no surprise that we've become emotional intelligence because the emotions in our household are big. Unsurprisingly, our children take after us, don't they? And I'm an emotional person. So it's no surprise that they've come with a whole range of emotions as well. It's trying to navigate them, make space for them, work out where I'm getting stuck, where they're getting stuck, what we can do and keep things shifting. I love that you say that in the book. You say, you know, with children, emotions are just always bubbling under the surface, about to come out. And I was really reflecting on that when I was finishing the book last night because I was thinking, gosh, you know, before I had children, of course I had an emotional life and Guy, my husband, had an emotional life with my friends, but it's nothing like the sort of pure emotion, actually, of babies and toddlers in particular and then teens. I'm not there yet, but... It can be such a baptism of fire if we're not versed in how to handle these things called emotions. And of course, if we weren't taught that, which many of us weren't, how on earth are we supposed to know how to handle these just pure little emotional beings? Quite. And trying to process our own emotions and then do the processing for them as well is a big job, isn't it? There's a lot happening at any one point. I think that's it. And sometimes the emotions are very fast. And because emotions are so contagious, we end up just sort of picking up on their tension or their distress or their anxiety or their rage. And that's hard. That's hard because those emotions are fast and pressurizing and they don't give you much chance then to reflect or shift away from them. There's that pace, that pace and that pressure. I think you just said something so powerful that I want to underscore, which is emotions are so contagious. And I really just witnessed this in my own household. It's just fascinating how if one of us is struggling emotionally, you know, whether that's stress or anxiety or anger or joy, you know, it goes both ways, doesn't it? How quickly that spreads around all the other members. And I just find that so mind-blowing because so many parents will talk to me about feeling stressed and overwhelmed. And then, you know, they'll say, and also my child seems stressed and overwhelmed. And I'll sometimes say, well, emotions are contagious. And there's always just this sort of mind-blown moment. 
So can you talk to that as a way in for why, you know, because I think to some people they're like, well, feelings are feelings, emotions, emotions. Why does it matter? Why should we care? Truth is if we can regulate our own, it makes parenting a ton easier, right? Because they're not then picking up on what's going with us. hundred percent, Zoe. Before we learn to talk, before we learn to do anything, we learn to watch our parents and pick up on their moods to learn whether things are safe or not safe through their body language. So children are intimately aware of our body language and they will understand that before our rationalizations are the words we use. They understand our body language and how we feel. And as parents, when we're holding these tiny babies and watching them all the time, responding to every sort of mood they have, we become intimately aware of their emotions, their body language. So it's another layer entirely. We have that as a sort of human beings. We're pack animals, aren't we? So we respond to each other's moods. But when it's with your own child, it's of another layer of intensity. And that's fantastic. It's really good because children learn very quickly what's safe, what's not safe, how they need to respond to things in a much more efficient way than if we had to explain everything. Imagine if you had to explain something in a textbook example. Well, I want you to be frightened of the cat when he makes this noise, but not this noise, but only if you're standing near him, (laughs) if mummy's not around, it would be very complicated world. So the fact that they can watch you and pick up your emotional reactions to everything is an extremely efficient, clever way of working. And as we get older, it begins to get more complicated because sometimes the words we use around an emotion are different to the way we're responding. So I remember really clearly being in Sainsbury's with my dad, going through the till, packing, shopping. And I'd say, Dad, why are you so cross with the lady? <laughs> he was cross. I, I think the woman had charged him the wrong amount. And he said, I am not cross, Anne. I am not cross. <laughs> and I'm saying, you are. But Dad, you are. And him getting even crosser at me because I was embarrassing him in front of the cashier. So it's it's that typical example of how, as children, we know what the feeling is. But sometimes as parents, we don't want to admit that that's the way we feel about something. We want emotions to be neater, to be politer, to be more grown up. And so children are trying to pick up on that disparity. So it starts with this massive information. And then we start using language to try and fine tune emotions. And if we as the parent are really reflecting or processing that, that becomes quite confusing. We confused ourselves and then the confusion gets sort of amplified around us. So you'll notice as a parent, every time you're a bit confused about your own emotions, it gets amplified in the presence of your child who's trying to work out that discrepancy. So they're brilliant things. They're absolutely contagious because they have to be. But later on, it means that any of the little emotions or the big emotional tangles we have ourselves, they'll get picked up by our children. And that becomes quite complicated. Well, let's start there because, I mean, I feel constantly confused by my emotions, (laughs) you know, and I do this for a job and I journal a lot and I sit with myself. It takes me actually often with a professional to unravel what's really going on because it's never what's going on on the surface. So I think the first thing to say is that this is really hard to do. And I'm wondering if you have anything in your toolbox that can help people with that 
emotional literacy for themselves because as we're just unpacking that's the place to start isn't it with our own it is you made me laugh when you said that because I was thinking about why I went into this job initially and I think it's because I found my emotions really confusing really confusing so I think often you get people going into a job such as being a therapist or a psychologist when they've noticed a big disparity between how they'd like to feel and how they actually feel or what they'd like to do and what they're doing and they want to begin understanding that disparity and begin to sort of slow it down and put words to it and make sense of it what we try to do both for ourselves and our children is we try to notice when we get into knots around things or when things feel confusing the first indicator will be when our emotions feel tight or quick or tense That's a really good indication that we've got a lot going on that we're not really able to make sense of. So if you find yourself feeling very frustrated, very angry with your kids or a lot of shame or a lot of fear, these tight, tense emotions are often a sign it's good to sort of stand back and pause and find someone to talk these through or find a space where you can reflect. So that noticing is the first thing, Sorry. And there's plenty that I can notice during the day. <laughs> there's food for thought. And the second thing is to think, my reaction makes sense. I just have to work out why. I'm not wrong. I'm not silly. I'm not ridiculous. It's just having that sense of trust in ourselves. The way I reacted earlier made sense. Now, when we start to give ourselves permission to look at something, when we say, I make sense, my experiences make sense, my emotions make sense, they begin to calm and slow down. And then we can begin to start putting some language to them. So some people have therapy weekly, other people have friends who are good at thinking about things, other people prefer to read and reflect themselves. Other people actually do it a little bit with their family around them. I'm not in a position where I can access a therapist straight away. I might have had a real go at the kids in the morning getting out to school. I know a really good way to start without having to have professional support is just sometimes when they get back that evening and I'll sometimes say, let's have a bit of a chat and we'll sit on the stairs or something. And I say, I got really cross this morning, didn't I? Just that process of me beginning to reflect with them slows down that emotion and it begins to open it up and they love it they love it when I talk about something that's been sudden or unexpected or stressful or difficult they really gravitate to me talking about those things even if we can't draw any conclusion from it or there's nothing to be learned they just like me telling the story of the emotion sometimes so I'll say Sam brought the bowl over and it smashed and I got really cross and I said, okay, now everyone needs to get out of the kitchen. And they like that narrative. They like that narrative. And that narrative begins to orientate everyone's area. It begins to start feeling like this can be made sense of. This wasn't unpredictable or scary or strange. We weren't wrong. We can make sense of this. And then one of them will say, and you got really cross when I put the spoon on the side and I'll say yes. And then I got really cross when you put the spoon on the side. And my daughter might say, you always get cross in the morning. And I'll say, yes, I always get cross in the morning. And we put a narrative to this. Now, after that, sometimes can say, I'll say, I don't know. I do find the mornings quite tricky. So sometimes I can say, I don't know. I don't understand what's going on. I might have in my head, 
Well, it's because no one would come down, but I know that they're little, they're small, they don't have the capacity to be quick and getting changed or kind of early. And we'll begin, that slow movement through begins to think, and they'll say, well, mummy, if you would put out our clothes, we can get changed a bit earlier and we'll come. Sometimes we come up with the plans early, but the initial point of sort of regulating and understanding and moving through those emotions and putting them through language is giving them time and space away from the stressful episode. So notice I say to do that later. There's something about reflecting on something later that's a quite a key part of emotional intelligence. Because when it's really hot and stressful and difficult, it's hard. It's hard to slow everything down and think. It's impossible, isn't it? Because you're sort of hijacked in your brain and we're flooded with hormones. It's sort of impossible. I think there's something really important that you just shared, which is sort of the story under the story that you just shared, which is, you know, the story of you, you know, as a psychologist with all these tools, losing it at breakfast in the morning and you know and I know that every single person listening to this will relate in some way to that story we've all been there and I think what's really important and sometimes it's a double-edged sword isn't it when we talk about the power of helping our children with their emotions our feelings and having to regulate ourselves and that's the ideal right that's the sort of textbook isn't it but what you've just shared is when you get it wrong and I've got thousands of stories of when I get it wrong and everyone listening will have as well because we're human and we're imperfect can you talk to that this idea of yes we know this is really important but equally as important is sort of messing it up and getting it wrong and this links into the good enough idea can you talk to that and why that's equally as important as getting it right yes life is really messy Life is complicated. Life places multiple demands on us all, not just families, individuals. And our children, as they go through life, will have multiple demands placed on them. There'll be expectations which aren't possible to meet. There'll be sickness. There'll be tiredness. There'll be financial worries. There'll be relationship difficulties. Going through our life is complicated. It's difficult. And it doesn't necessarily give us time in each moment to process things properly. So life is full of mistakes, full of misjudgments, full of frustrations. When our children are with us, there is that opportunity to help them reflect on those mistakes. When they're out in the world, we won't be with them so much. We won't be there helping them. So I want my children to see some of the complexities and some of the difficulties in life so that they gain a sense of okayness around this that that is okay, that we can manage this. This is not a sign of something really severe or difficult. It's manageable. And when we live in a family where there are lots of different demands and there's mistakes made and there is crossness and there is frustration or there is just breaks in the relationship, we begin to really understand what that feels like. There's a guy called Ed Tronic and he did a lot of research to look at how often parents mess up with their children really <laughs> so, so how imperfect the relationship and he was looking at just with very young infants and he was saying that parents ability to respond appropriately or to be in sync with the child is limited to about 20 to 30 percent of interactions the rest of the interactions were either completely out of sync where a parent was not understanding what a child's needs were moving towards being in sync, trying to work them out, or moving away from being in sync. So two-thirds of the time, or even four-fifths of the time, a parent was not relating. And as children get older, that will 
become a smaller amount because they will be at school, because they'll be with babysitters, because they will be playing with each other. It will become a smaller amount. So it is quite common for children as they get older to have to manage more and more complicated stuff themselves without you being there. So the ability to come back to situations afterwards and reconnect and reflect and repair is such a great life skill to teach them. So one, Zoe, it's reality. It's reality to say that life is complicated. If we raise children in a situation where there were no complications came up, no tense emotions, where every emotion was recognised and talked about and reflected on straight away, children wouldn't develop that sort of resilience, that deep understanding of the world. Two, it is such a great skill to be able to come back to something out of the heat of the moment and talk about it. There's something about the quality of attention human beings give to repair. They focus, they bring a special sort of attention to that. It's really connecting. It's really profound. It's really lovely. And it comes only on the back of mistakes. So I'm not recommending we try to make mistakes. God knows I make enough just as it is. But there's almost a gift in a real mistake, a genuine mistake, coming back through reflecting because the thing that happens in that repair is sturdier than if, if it had never happened in the first place. It's beautiful, actually. Someone said to me on the podcast once some very simple words, which was love is made in repair. Oh, I've never, ever forgotten it. And I would say as well that it's never too late and you're never too old. Like my mother and I, you know, she's repaired some things with me and I've repaired some things with her that happened decades ago. And it's just beautiful. In my experience, like it always increases that connection, this idea of it repair. It's profoundly beautiful. There's a woman called Mary Main and she has looked to see about her relationships with people. She looks at attachment and she says that people can have had a very difficult childhoods, very distressing, very traumatic childhoods. But if they are allowed to have a coherent narrative around that, then their relationships on into the future have the ability to be secure and healthy. And by coherent, she means real. What happened? What really happened? What were the different components to that? What was going on? So that we can begin to sort of acknowledge what was me in that? What was the other person? What did they mean? It takes some of the fear out of it. It takes the disorientation out of it. And the people who are most able to give us a coherent narrative, this happens more rarely, are the parents. So if you are 60 and your parents 80 and they say to you, I wished at that time when I went away, I wished I had rung you in the evenings. I'd wish I'd rung you at the weekends. I wish I had, when your baby was born, I wish I'd come and spent three days with you looking after you. It takes the fear away. It takes that feeling of isolation and loneliness, and it stops making us feel like we're bananas. <laughs> we're not holding on to something that's recognised. It can be made sense of our emotions from our childhood make sense. We're just going to take a short break from the episode, and I'm really excited because my sponsor this week is a product I use every day. So I'd heard of Athletic Greens on my friend Rongan Chatterjee's podcast, and I thought about it. It was only when I saw my husband Guy had stuck taking it 
And I noticed a massive difference in his energy levels and the quality of his sleep. He's quite a bad sleeper and he was sleeping way, way, way better. So I thought I need to get me some of this. So I have been taking Athletic Greens every day since October and my energy levels have never been higher. Well, since having the girls. I take it first thing in the morning, right after I've made the girls porridge. It's super simple. It actually tastes quite nice. So with one delicious scoop of Athletic Greens, you're absorbing 75 high quality vitamins, minerals, whole sourced superfoods, easy for me to say, probiotics and adaptogens. It takes minutes to mix it up. So with very little time in our busy, busy, busy lives, taking my Athletic Greens is one thing I can do every single day to take care of myself. Every time I have it, I feel like I'm showing myself through my actions that I deserve to feel good and I'm worth looking after. It helps me remember my mantra. I can only be the mother I want to be when I look after myself too. So to make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you one free year's supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash motherkind. Very important. That's athleticgreens.com slash motherkind to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Back to the wonderful Anne on today's episode. It's so true in my experience that one of the most damaging things in my personal experiences, sort of secrecy and half-told truths. And I couldn't put a story and I couldn't figure stuff out. And But what I wanted to ask you was age appropriateness. Because whenever I talk about this, I get lots of questions about, well, do I tell the real reason why I'm getting divorced, which is that my partner cheated? Or do I really say the real reason we're moving house is because we can't afford this rent anymore? Or do I just jazz hand it up and say we're moving and it's going to be great? And I really have no idea. So I'm fascinated to hear how does someone get that congruence as you've talked about and that truth. And we've talked about children know, and that was my experience. I knew energetically what was up, but it wasn't said. So how do we navigate that? It's really important to co-develop a story with the child. So around divorce, around financial difficulties, around a parent's mental health, All of these things, children perceive them. And what happens is if they don't have a story around them, they can make it about themselves. I was the reason mummy left. When I asked for that extra pair of pyjamas, that's why we're in financial distress. That's why we can't keep the house. It's because I wanted that extra pair of pyjamas or I had the expensive birthday party. So children prefer to make something about themselves than they do about their parents because that ensures they're safe. If they're the problematic person in this they're safer because their parents are still preserved but there is a big burden to making yourself the problem now your question of what's age appropriate is really interesting and the way we know that is we take our child's lead so it might be that you are separating from your partner and you tell your child the very clearly the bare bones you know mommy and daddy are not going to be living together anymore mommy and daddy aren't getting on we're arguing a lot and we think it's much better if we live in separate houses and the two of you come and stay and so you explain the bare bones of what's going to happen and what you know at that point and then you listen to see if they've got any questions about it so children 
even children, so this is I'm talking from the age of sort of like four on to about 12, they can't take on very much information, especially when it's emotionally big for them. So conversations have to happen in lots of parts. So you begin the very basic and then you want to know whether they're able to emotionally cope with this and regulate. So then you wait a little bit. Quite often when you tell a child something in the first instance, they are just trying to process that emotionally and their emotions are all over the place. So they might well just suck their thumb or shrug or they might say they want to watch TV. They might want to just get away from (laughs) that piece of information. That's fine. But what you do is you give lots of opportunity for lots of little conversations about it sporadically. So there might be that conversation as they're going to bed. You can say, how are you feeling? How are you feeling? They might shrug. They might still be in that quite defensive place. But then the next day you'll return. You might talk to Nana on the phone about it with them there in a very simplified way. You might sit them up on the counter with you. And this is even if they're eight or nine or ten, you can still sit them up on the counter. And you say, Nana, we told Jenna yesterday that Daddy and I are not going to be living together. And let her listen a little bit, take it in. And you could say, Jenna, what was it like when I told you? And she might still sort of shake her head. So you're you're trying at first to work out whether a child's ready to talk a little bit more and you give them lots of little opportunities. But what tends to happen is before bed, a few days later, you'll get a bit like, I don't want you and daddy to spit up and I don't like this and I don't want it. And it's at that point you can climb into the bed a little bit and you go, you don't like this. So you're empathising, you don't like this. And that's when you say, daddy and I, we love you so much. But sometimes when you're a grown up, these things can be really tricky to manage and sometimes they do. So you take the conversations in slowly, slowly in parts, always watching their emotional reaction. If they come up with any questions, you answer it as simply as you can. You take it away from the realm of the child being responsible, but you also try and not go enter into a lot of shame or blame or anger around it. You're trying to kind of place everything without too much frustration or anger or pain. And that's hard. That's really hard, Zoe, because we feel a lot of frustration or anger. We can have had partners who are unfaithful. We can have had financial situations which are unfair. There can be a lot of trauma around the things that happen to a family. But your job is to try and place things very calmly and neatly. If you get upset, if you cry, you can say, mummy feels a lot of big emotions around this. It's quite hard for me to think about this, but you're safe and I love you. So that's a very elongated way to answer that question. But I'm hoping the basics come is that it's lots of small little conversations. We're trying as adults to put words to hard things. And we're trying as much as we can to acknowledge when we're feeling lots of emotions around them, but bring it back to the child and what it means for them. I think that's so powerful and clear and helpful. And I think, you know, this idea of, Always, maybe that's a too strong a word, but always telling our children what's going on, but in an age appropriate way is more powerful for their emotional development, for their EQ, for their emotional health than sort of not telling them or glossing things over. And I often hear about this at the school gates with illness. So, you know, very sadly, there's a couple of mums that I know at the moment whose own parents are very ill and they haven't told the children because clearly they're trying to protect them from that pain or maybe the ill person doesn't want the children to know wants to carry on and that for me is fascinating because my experience as a child was that as you shared children know 
Yes. And the really fascinating thing is that children have no inherent fear of anything other than they're watching your reaction. So when you're telling them something, we can be telling them about all sorts of things that happen in the news, you know, someone being murdered, but they're watching my reaction. Can I slow down when I'm telling them about it? Can I listen to their questions? Can I tune into how they're responding? Am I comfortable enough to talk about this? And that happens with the illness of a grandparent or an illness of a parent or all sorts of situations. Children need to know you're sturdy and they know you're sturdy if you're willing to slow down and reflect on it with them. So I can so understand why parents dealing with their own pain around a loss, they find it really overwhelming. It's very hard when you're finding something overwhelming to put it to a child. And I've had parents trying to do this and they cry. Sometimes they cry. Sometimes they say, I feel so upset or sad about this. That's okay. As soon as they say, mummy finds this really sad. Mummy finds this really upsetting. Daddy is really scared about what might happen to granddad. As soon as you put the words to it, your child sees you as much more orientated or sturdy than you could ever imagine. <laughs> you've managed to say something frightening. You've managed to say something big. Now, of course, what parents think is they're going to pick up on, but why are you frightened? But no, actually, the thing the child picks up on is daddy is solidly owning this. He's sitting with this feeling and he's putting words to it. How big and, and sturdy is my dad through this really <laughs> frightening situation? That's what they care about. Absolutely, they then will be worried or upset about their grandparents, but it's again sitting, helping them slow down around those emotions and name them. Saying what we know, saying what we don't know. You know, a couple of things come up for me. The first one is the courage to have difficult conversations, oh, yeah. which as an adult I still struggle with. But also when you have those difficult conversations, and this is the same in adult to adult relationships. You want that sense that someone can hold what you're about to tell them or what you're about to, yeah. you know, there's certain friends I just wouldn't have those difficult, big conversations with, because I just get a feeling that it would just, yeah, <laughs> wouldn't, I wouldn't have that container. And it's so interesting, isn't it? Because I think doing this podcast and having these, so many of these incredible conversations it can feel quite complex, but I think really what you're saying and what I'm really taking from this is just the simplicity of being able to face up to some of those hard things and just slow down and just tell our children to the best of our ability, we're going to do it perfectly, but that isn't the issue. That isn't, as you described, what gives people, you know, challenging emotional landscapes. Often it's the opposite. It's the secrecy or the discontainment and emotions just everywhere and never talked about. I used to work with families seeking asylum in Newham. And I remember one family where they were being moved for the fourth time. The children had just settled for a year in school and they were going to be moved again. And by that stage, moving was very traumatic for them. But I do remember the mum just slowing everything down and taking a lot of time with the children to explain what was going on and give space to their reactions to it, not try to rush their reactions or make their reactions go away. She just gave it space. I remember thinking, gosh, how can she manage this? How can she manage her own emotions? And she said, there's a certain point, Anne, she said, where you just know what's important. I begin to know what's important. I have to have everyone you know, steady. I don't think she's the one steady, but it was secure for the move. And you begin to know what's important in situations and what's not. And I think the biggest advice is 
slow down with your children if they bring anything up or if you need to explain something give it a bit of space a bit of time allow whatever's going to be said acknowledge your own emotions see whether they want anything else explained go back to normal life as much as you can (laughs) for a cup of tea (laughs) try to touch around and give it a little bit more space again if it comes up later in the day and if it comes up the next day stop sometimes I've stopped on the way back from school and I've put my child onto the wall and we've sat down next to each other on the wall and we've just given things a bit of time and a bit of space it signals to our emotions that something's safe when we're not reacting too quickly or trying to push something away and when our emotions feel safe we can begin to reflect and notice and think about something is it that feeling of safety and being able to process things is that one of the cornerstones of emotional intelligence Absolutely. We need to be able to recognise what our emotion is saying to us. Very rarely are situations really frightening. So if we step out, if our child steps out into the road in front of a car, absolutely, we need to respond quickly. We need to stop them doing that. We need to pull them back in. That's really appropriate. But most of the time, our emotions signal danger or fear when there isn't anything to be feared at that moment. So our predominant role is trying to just slow things down so it can regulate so the fear begins to shift. And that takes time. It takes time for you know all the sort of adrenaline and cortisol to shift from our system. That's what we want to signal. And sometimes the reflecting comes later, but it is absolute cornerstone. Thank you for saying it like that. And I wanted to ask you because I was reading a study yesterday, a very bleak study, which was saying that depression in young adults has doubled in the last 10 years, which made me feel really sad. And from my own life, you know, I hear so many of our friends, particularly with older children, you know, 10, 11, 12, 13, struggling with anxiety. And you have a brilliant section in the book about emotional intelligence and the steps to get there. And I'm wondering if you can talk to the intersection, because sometimes I feel like that's missed. People talk about anxiety and depression and these mental health challenges with young people, but I'm wondering how much the missing piece of the puzzle is this ability to regulate and name our emotions. And can you talk to that and what we can do as parents of younger ones who maybe aren't quite there yet, or if someone's listening who does have an anxious 11 year old, how does all this apply? We've got really good at fixing lots of things. We are fantastic at fixing physical complaints. So medical technology has moved on leaps and bounds. And sometimes we try to take the same approach to our emotions. We try and fix them all. So there is almost a modern day perception that we should only be feeling happy and calm and secure, that other emotions are wrong. And when we see children move into their older years, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, they can pick up on this sense that sadder, lower, more anxious emotions are a problem and they begin to pull away from them. They try to distract themselves on maybe social media or with video games or books or journals or lots of things to try and move themselves into a more positive state. 
So one of the key components of emotional intelligence is really recognizing that we experience lots of different emotions. We experience sadness, we experience loss, we experience isolation and loneliness, we experience connection and togetherness, we experience frustration, and that they belong in our life. They all have different roles, they all help us make sense of things. And what I want is I want children to learn this quite early on when they're in their three, four, five, six, seven, so that when they move through to being 10, 11, 12, that their expectation are that sometimes they will feel very sad, very low. Sometimes they'll feel lonely. These things aren't a sign of anything being really bad or really wrong. They're natural states for human beings. When we approach our emotions in that way, sometimes we lean into them, they slow down, they open up a little bit. We are able to respond to them without reacting we communicate about them more we slow down we go to bed a bit earlier we begin to just allow them to soften and relax and then they begin to just shift a bit more but I see a lot of teenagers where their emotions get really stuck they feel really frightened of them really frantic about them they feel that they're a sign that something's really wrong and then they engage in lots of complicated behaviors to try and change the way they feel maybe it's self-harm maybe it's trolling through Instagram or Snapchat or (laughs) TikTok maybe it's going out and it's drink and it's alcohol it's drugs they do lots of things to try and eliminate difficult emotional states and I'd say that the one thing we really want to do is let children feel more comfortable with those states so that when it comes to a time where they're talking about feeling depressed they know how to talk about it how to slow down how to open out those emotions as opposed to pulling away from them so it sounds sort of simplistic right but it is done through that emotional discussions and reflections daily in our families and that's acknowledging so sometimes my 10 year old will say to me I'm really worried about Monday I don't want to go into school I don't think I'm going to go to sleep tonight mummy the temptation is to try and put all of those things right don't worry Monday's gonna be fine because what have we got well we'll we'll invite your friend around in the afternoon and we will you know everyone feels this about it it's not a problem and and this will help you go to sleep and let's put some lavender spray on your pillows and let's do some deep breathing we almost become, we want technical fixes to all emotions at the moment. And what I do do is sometimes I just sit on the bed with her and I stroke her feet and I say, it feels truly rubbish, doesn't it? It feels rubbish. And you you love having the weekend. You love having more time. I just put voice to her experiences and her emotions, try to make sense of them. And then I give her a kiss and then I go. And then she's in her bedroom feeling a little bit sad, a bit rubbish. Sometimes she'll pop back at quarter to 10, say, I still can't sleep. And I will say again, I'll come in again, I'll say, oh, that's horrible. It's horrible when this happens. But I want her to know that I'm not worried, deeply worried. I don't like it for her. I'd rather she went to sleep. Absolutely. Can I just pin it up there, Zoe? I would love her to sleep, the sleep of angels, you know, something, never to be worried by these things. But it's not real. And I don't want to signal that that's a sign she's broken or not working or she should be doing something better. I want her to get really used to it. It's like a sort of giving an emotional vaccination. You know, this is what it feels like. This is how we handle it. Sometimes we just don't sleep very well. Sometimes we feel worried about weekend. So that as she gets older and there's more things that perturb those emotions, because there'll be more complicated things. There'll be all sorts of friendships and relationships and school pressures, physical illnesses that will cause her more challenges. I want her to be able to lean in and to slowly allow them to relax and unfold and regulate rather than responding to emotions as if they are difficult so that then they dig in and become more chronically distressed 
and get names such as depression or anxiety disorder, that's when emotions become more sort of significant and more bedded in. I think that's so helpful. And someone once said to me, I was right at the start of my sort of emotional healing, I guess you'd call it. And I was 22 and I didn't really have a clue about who I was or what I was up to. And there was lots of stuck emotions. And someone said to me, the thing is though, is that it's like a rainbow. You have to feel all the emotions and you can't selectively choose which ones you feel and ones you don't feel. You're either numb to them all and you're not going to feel the joy and the happiness that you're seeking anyway, or you just take that brave leap and you try and dive in and feel them all. And it's such a simple thing. And saying it now, I'm like, but I remember, I remember that blowing my mind. I remember being like, whoa. And I feel like what you've just done is so beautifully described and very tenderly. And I had a picture of you sat on the end of the bed. You know, our desire, of course, we adore our children, you know, and the fear the fear is what causes me often to want to fix because I'm so afraid of what might happen. But I think it's so counterintuitive and yet so beautiful that the way we fix is to just sit with. I remember an old Nina Simone song that I used to listen to when I was a 16-year-old, 17-year-old, and it was about her breaking up with someone. And she said, regretting rather than forgetting with someone new. And I remember thinking, yes, there's an importance, isn't there, for that regretting, that time to miss things, to acknowledge the end of the weekend and the beginning of something a bit more hectic. Or Those emotions are telling a story of our life and the things that we value and the things that we are not so happy about. But as parents, when we've had difficulty with our own emotions and we've found them painful in our own lives, our senses are very tuned in, aren't they? We notice and we worry quickly and we love them. We want to just make it better. So I've got great time for parents and what they're trying to do. You know, everyone is trying so hard, aren't we, to just make things right. What a beautiful phrase to end on. And I always ask the same question at the end of every episode, which is if you could give just one gift to all the mothers in the world, what would that one gift be and why? If I could give one gift to all of the mothers in the world, my absolute heartfelt want and need was to know that just your time and presence for your child, your emotional comfort around something is the biggest gift They could have difficult lives. They can meet all sorts of demands and experience all sorts of difficult situations. But just by you being this secure presence that they can go and speak to, reflect back on, you're doing the most amazing things for them. You're helping them process the emotion around it. So that would be my one gift is to say just your very presence, your quiet, still, comfortable presence is an immense gift to your children and it doesn't need to be more complicated than that Mm, that's beautiful thank you so that was the episode i hope that you really enjoyed it as ever if you did please consider sharing it with your friends and leaving me a review on itunes it really does make a difference to the number of mums that we can reach with the brilliant wisdom of the guests I have on. Also, just a reminder about the Family Reset Plan. It's my latest offering to parents. I think that we are living in probably the challenge of our lifetimes. Well, definitely so far. And as parents, we not only have to support ourselves, we also have to support our children. And that is a lot. So the Family Reset Plan is myself and two brilliant psychologists 
and we give you step-by-step, simple, applicable ways that you can support yourself emotionally to feel stronger, calmer, and therefore to support your children in a different way. It's all grounded in psychology and neuroscience. It's just £25 currently. And if you work for the NHS, it is totally free for you. So check out the website, familyresetplan.co.uk. Take care. I'll see you next time.